breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week in the new year, 2021, of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Always fantastic to be with all of you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining me. Hope you had a great new year. We were on a little bit of a hiatus for a few weeks, uh, along with the other podcasts at Blaze Podcast Network. So much to talk to you about. You know, I'm sure you had your fill of uh, podcasts and other uh, media discussions about 2020 and what a year it was. And uh, I think, you know, people were just celebrating more than I've ever seen in my 53 years a end of a year and i can tell you as bad as horrific as it was as stagnating as it was as tough economically as it was and as the virus dominated our lives and isolated us we have to be thankful to god we have to be thankful for our blessings for the country that we have for those of us that have come from countries our families which is everybody that's come from another country in which they had less freedom We realize what we have to be thankful for and how quickly, how quickly it could be taken away. But rather than look backwards, I'm sure you had your fill of reviews of 2020. I'm sure you had your fill of more punditry. I hope you come here to sort of get away from the regular old mill of partisan politics, of that divide. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine through the New Year's and we remarked on how almost every issue, forget just personalities like Trump and Pelosi and others, but every issue, when it comes to things not entertain, even entertainment sometimes diverts, not sometimes, too often diverts into politics. But every issue gets looked at through the lens, through the prism of how the political divide responds. And why have we lost the creativity of these things? Why has the, you know, you think about the documentaries, the, uh, the, the opinion editorials, the whatever it might be where you look at certain issues, it's almost as if no longer is it just about that issue, but it becomes about how the person embodying a certain politic with that politic looks at that issue. So therefore the first filter is, what that person's politics is and which side of the spectrum they are and whether they're a lefty or a righty or whatever. Now, again, this is not actually a plea for nonpartisanship or this is not even a plea for bipartisanship. It's a, it's, a, it's a plea to forget the partisanship completely. And that's not being nonpartisan. That is actually being creative. It's looking at our world, looking at our culture through what it means to be American, to be free, to be creative, to be an individual. Remember the post-Enlightenment society was about how to celebrate the individuals over the collective. And our society has gone through a lot of gyrations and, and upheavals, fighting for the re- recurrence and the, and the reverence for that individual freedom, for those individual rights. And yet we're losing it. Some of most people try to blame social media. There's been a lot of that in the news lately. We can talk about the power of certain governmental agencies, certain large monopolies, 
have over what's discussed in the public marketplace, in the so-called marketplace of ideas, but yet only certain ideas get preference over others. But that, again, is not what I'm talking about. Can we, in 2021, begin to look at my issue, for example, political Islam? Can we look at women's rights? Can we look at female genital mutilation? Can we look at the policies in France against Islamism or in Austria? Not through the right versus left prism, but rather through humanity, individualism, free freedom, free speech, universal human rights. That is the language I'm talking about, is a prism. When I look at issues, yes, I'm like everybody else, all of you, we're complex individuals. We have our family issues. We have our faith-based issues. We have our physical and health issues, our financial issues that color the way we look at issues. A specific topic can be based. It's almost impossible to take it in an unbiased way. You are colored by the products by which you had. So many people might have been pro-free market for years. And then the government goes and takes away their ability to keep their doors open because of a pandemic. And now they inevitably, to survive, have to support socialism. Now, the vast majority of free market folks I know did not do that. But sometimes you can't blame somebody because of the circumstances in which they're put in, the government forces them to shut their doors, not by their own choice, in which they then say, well, the government has to pay me back for taking away my livelihood. So each of us has a prism through which we look at that, but that's the beauty of individuality. When we collectivize and we assume that somebody's reaction is going to be based first on the political nature from which they derive their position, and not from the truth or untruth or the value of those ideas, we've lost who we are. So I hope this year in our podcast, as we have our conversations, you can begin to look, if you haven't already. My guess is that all of you that listen here are probably already on the more genuine side of listening to the strength or the weakness of ideas rather than where you assume they may be coming from. But I hope that's one of the themes for 2021 because already almost two weeks into 2021 and it doesn't look like the rancor is going to lighten. If anything, January 6th was a blight on who we are. A dark day for America. And we saw our enemies. We saw our enemies relishing in the stressors that shook who we are at the, at the foundations. And regardless of what you think politically, regardless of what you think politically, there's no doubt that a mob killing a police officer, desecrating the halls of the people's house, is an embarrassment and a major shock to our system. I'll let other pundits in other programs be there for you to discuss the details of where we are on Trumpism, conservatism, leftism, liberalism, 
on a Biden administration coming, identity politics, comparing it to the BLM movement and other where the hypocrisies or non-hypocrisies are. I'll let you all do that. That's not what this program's about. Or at least maybe I'm choosing today not to have it be about that. Um, because I want you to have something to listen to that's not about that rancor. That is about the values that are global, not globalism, but values that should be global about freedom and individuality that I believe America is the shining city on a hill. That we can, at our best of days, that we can be that example. And as is painfully obvious, our greatest enemies from Khamenei and Iran to Erdogan in Turkey, to Qatar, to China, took advantage of the stressors happening in Washington this week in order to decry what they saw as a fiction of liberalism, the fiction of democracy. You saw Erdogan, the Islamist supremacist, offer help and ask Turks to to help Americans in our struggles with democracy and educate us on how to run a democracy better. We could use some expletives to refer to that, but I won't. Khamenei then also used the opportunity to not only defend his own supremacist theocracy, but denigrate America as a failed experiment in his repulsive tweets on the 7th and 8th of January. Now, my response was on our worst days. On our worst days as Americans, we are centuries ahead of the pre-enlightenment collectivism and fascism and theocracy that is the medieval interpretations of law that are Iran under Khomeini and his Islamic Republic or under Turkey and its Islamist regime of Erdogan, who's imprisoning tens of thousands for ideas. Or under the Muslim Brotherhood and their supporters like Qatar. Or the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. On and on. Those who would denigrate us will never admit that on our worst days, we are centuries ahead of them ideologically. And this program is about finding those aspects of Islam that we each practice personally as Muslims that we have modernized, that we have brought into the 20th century, and then abandoning those practices that the establishment of Islam believes is part of the faith and we reject as being part of the faith as reformists. It's fascinating. You look at some of the stressors of the pandemic and one of the pieces I saw this week that I wanted to talk to you about was, yeah, believe it or not, on NPR. Is the pandemic causing a surge in FGM, female genital mutilation? Appeared on January 5th. Talks about Kenya and how in early December they saw an uptick significantly as reported from some of the foundations that are doing the Orchid Project, for example, is doing a lot of work in trying to prevent not only in passage of laws against FGM, but actually cultural shifts 
in preventing it and protecting young girls. Gati Alphonse said, We lost some of the girls. She founded the Safe Engage Foundation, a community-based group that works to end female genital mutilation. What is FGM? Let me explain that to you. We've talked about it before on this program, but for those of you who may not have listened to those episodes yet, um, FGM is not about simply circumcision. It is about the belief, either culturally or by Islamists or Salafists, that for some reason girls, they believe, are born hypersexual. And that the way to make them normal sexual or desexualize them is to perform a circumcision. There are four types of it, from the worst type in which they completely desexualize them and not only perform, they perform a, a form of mutilation that removes their ability at sexual pleasure all the way up to the so-called mildest form, which I don't believe there is a mild form of this type of heinous operation, but a, a nick to the female genitals that supposedly relieves them of that sexual hyper-urges. We've even talked about sermons here in which imams in Northern Virginia, as we saw at the Falls Church Mosque, and other mosques over the years have somehow tried to explain why that's part of the Islamic tradition. Now, even the Islamists globally have begun to abandon FGM because they see it as a, as a horrific procedure. The sad thing is that even discussions in America, they try to avoid discussions of making it illegal, even though it has been made illegal, I think, in 24, 25 states, thanks to a number of foundations, most notably the AHA Foundation of Ayan Hirsi Ali and others that have been working vociferously to try to prevent that from being done. There was a federal case in, in Michigan of doctors in a sect that had been bringing young girls, seven, eight, nine years old, in from Minnesota, most of which were Somali immigrants, in order to perform the procedure in Detroit, the federal case was abandoned by a judge who said that it was not the domain of the federal government to make laws as heinous as this these crimes were, not the domain of the feds to make laws against this. It was the states. Well, Michigan didn't have a law, so therefore that case was thrown out after all the work by the feds. And there's so much more there. But I bring this topic back because we're seeing now, during the pandemic, this significant report out of Africa that says that lockdowns and school closures during the pandemic left many girls at home vulnerable to genital cutting in communities that see the practice as a prerequisite for marriage and in some places as a rite of passage. Girls that don't get the procedures are told that they're not normal, that they will not be pure, that they will be inhuman. God forbid, if they don't have it done. And that is horrific. Any place in which it's done, the crimes against humanity that are involved in these procedures must end. And hopefully all 50 states in America will have it illegal. 
yet in these communities, as they talk about during the lockdowns, during the isolation, more were done because they had time to sit and cogitate about it. And I think it begins to show you how so much of the value system work that we're doing that involves promoting universal values, protecting those that are vulnerable, involves an engaged community. So you might be trying to stop the spread of a virus, but there are other pandemics that come as a result. The increase in psychiatric illness, the, the, the lack of observation of warning signs of alcoholism, of domestic abuse, of impending threats upon other individuals, of other illnesses. We've talked about heart disease, cancers, others that have been left undiagnosed because people are isolated. And now these types of horrific diseases, we're see- not diseases, this is, this is a crime against humanity that's being perpetrated because of the isolation in exponentially increased volumes. These girls, as it said in the NPR report, are not just being cut, they are being forcibly married off. And a girl that has had FGM is worth more. Worth more. It's slavery. It's seen as an investment into the girl and her ability to be married off, said Nimko Ali, an activist who was born in Somaliland and subjected to FGM. She now lives in London where she leads the Five Foundation, a global partnership to end FGM. FGM can have long-lasting impacts on health, including scarring, urinary incontinence, painful sexual intercourse, complications during childbirth, as well as psychological consequences such as anxiety and depression, to name a few. In parts of West Africa, this report notes that many cutters who had abandoned FGM returned to the practice because it was the way that they saw that they could obtain income at this difficult time because of the lockdowns. The increase in FGM is particularly startling in Kenya because the country which outlawed the practice in 2011 was widely seen as making real strides toward eradicating it. The Kenyan president made an ambitious pledge to stamp it out by 2022. Then came the pandemic, which redirected policing and other resources elsewhere, allowing the local traditional leaders to flout the law. Just to give you some numbers, 21% of Kenyan girls and women aged 15 to 49 have undergone FGM, but it can vary dramatically. And it's been increasing now as a result of the pandemic in 2020. And it's going to continue. In sort of an explanation of how the pandemic led to this, a rural pastoralist region of northern Kenya saw a sharp increase in girls being subjected to mutilation. Josephine Kolea, founder and executive director of the Samburu Girls Foundation, which prevents and works to prevent FGM in young girls by seven years old, found that convincing their families to enroll them in school and supporting them through university helped to prevent it. And now, since they were at home, the increase happened. The high rates of illiteracy increased. The girls who did not get educated attend boarding schools, but when schools closed last March, Girls returned to their villages at a time when they were hosting mass circumcisions of boys. So when the girls went back to the villages, it was an opportunity to cut them too. And the report goes on. 
You get it. You understand. But I'm sure you're as horrified as I am. And I think the message here, whether it's radicalization of political Islam and its separatism and its supremacism, right? As, as you isolate individuals, freedom is what suffers the most when you isolate communities. Theocrats, tyrants, survive when the government becomes the, the, not only the one that locks you down, but that has to give you money, that has to give you a sustenance. And then these practices return. We have to change that. Now, the next thing is on a much brighter note. I've talked to you about the, the I think, wonderful changes that have happened with the Abraham Accords as countries like the Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and hopefully soon Saudi Arabia began to recognize officially Israel, not only as a state, but as an equal partner in diplomatic relations. And we also talked about what's happening in France with the buckle down on political Islam and the Islamist movements ideologically, both in its nonviolent separatist arms as well as its violent arms. And part of the buckle down against Islamism resulted in a global kick, kickback or pushback against not only Macron but the French economy, led by the Islamists. You saw Turkey. Qatar and Al Jazeera, Iran, the Khomeini and their media, press TV and others push for a boycott of French products. Well, karma is a you-know-what, because this week, recently I should say, now there's a boycott being pushed against Turkey. And uh, the, the call to boycott Turkish goods started to arise in many Arab countries because the Turks were so vigorously, vigorously anti-Israel, anti-Semitic, and they were calling out their, their old uh, friends in the Islamist movements, if you will. Well, they thought they were Islamists, but the Emirates and Bahrainis and Saudis and others now seem to abandon the money connection that was funding a lot of the Islamist movements from Hamas and the Brotherhood and elsewhere. They never really shared deep ideological friendship, though the Sharia interpretations were often similar. As I told you, the monarchical Salafis were more corporate Islamists that believed that a small group should sort of run society and not a populist, viral Islamist group like the Brotherhood. So now... They've, since 2017, basically declared war on the Islamists. Well, the AKP in Turkey of Erdogan, the Brotherhood, the Islamists on the Shia side in Iran have been against that. So now they're coming out against this kinship, this friendship that's now developing with Israel. Erdogan published a video on Twitter last last month threatening unspecified Arab Gulf countries in an unprecedented way. He said, quote, these countries did not exist yesterday and perhaps they will cease to exist in the near future. That's quite a threat, isn't it? But God Almighty will continue to raise our flag in the region forever. Erdogan said in the tweet posted in Arabic with the video of his remarks in Turkish. 
So his neo-Ottomism is coming into play, as is his supremacism over the Arabs in the region, regardless of their Islamic faith that they share. Now, interesting that he doesn't believe that on Iran, does he? Seems to conveniently put aside his Ottomism, his caliphism, when talking to the Shia extremists of Hezbollah or Iran. So, the platform of Twitter flared up in the region with angry replies from folks in Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and the Gulf countries attacking the Turkish president, describing his threats as a declaration of war on the Gulf and the Arab world. They described his arrogant, narcissistic statements as a clear reflection of his annoyance with the Gulf countries that have stood against his ambitions in Syria, Libya, and with their rapprochement with Israel. One Twitter writer said that not only has he posted the video on his Arabic account, but he's also had the statements translated into Arabic. It's a declaration of war. If it had happened with Europe or Canada, NATO lines would have met and things would have become serious. A hashtag then began, boycott Turkish products. It went viral and continued to trend in Saudi Arabia for several days last month. Within a week, eight Turkish business groups, including textile exporters and contractors, had called on Saudi authorities to stop the boycott. Oh, so now they're not really a democracy. They're asking the Saudi government to stop the boycott. And the Saudi government responded, we didn't place any limitations on Turkish goods. And that the Turkish and Gulf states were not severed in their interactions economically or otherwise when the Turkish president attacked the decision by Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt to boycott Qatar in 2017. But at the time, even though they decided to boycott Qatar because of the problems going on with Iran and the belligerence happening with Iran against Saudi Arabia, and Qatar taking the side of Iran, Ankara stepped up, Ankara Turkey stepped up its relations with Qatar and established a military base there that caused a further deterioration in relations with the quartet. That quartet being Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt. Erdogan then consistently continued to increase his support of not only Qatar, but the Muslim Brotherhood and other militant groups, including fringe support of peri-ISIS, peri-Al-Qaeda groups in Syria, working on destabilizing countries such as Egypt and others. And yet trade did not stop. Turkey even benefited from the Qatar crisis by acting as a transit point for Saudi goods to Qatar. And it goes on. It even helped Iran bypass many of the Western sanctions. Yet the Turkish business group said, quote, any official or unofficial initiative to block trade between the two countries, Saudi Arabia and Turkey, will have negative repercussions on our trade relations and be detrimental to the economies of both countries. We deeply regret the discriminatory treatment that our companies face in Saudi Arabia. And we expect the Saudi authorities to take concrete initiatives to resolve the problem. Now, 
Again, there's no doubt that Saudi Arabia is not a free market. The government probably does have the ability to change some of those things, but I think some of that history I laid out there tells you that um, you know Turkey similarly used the power of its governmental economics to wield significant assistance and aid to the Brotherhood, to Hamas, to Islamist groups, to Qatar, to Iran, the enemies of Saudi Arabia. As far as the Emirates are concerned, quote, popular resentment against Erdogan has been growing for some time. It's just been more evident now, reflected in the call to boycott Turkish goods after the recent insults from Erdogan and the Arab countries, said Marushid, who is a Emirati political commentator. He goes on to say, when people see Erdogan bombing northern Iraq, occupying parts of Syria, and transferring terrorists to Libya, popular opposition to Turkey grows. These aggressive policies and direct support for terrorists are meant to destabilize the Arab countries and they already threaten national security. The least people can do is express their opposition by stop buying Turkish products. Just to give you some numbers, Turkish exports to Saudi Arabia exceeded $3.5 billion a year, while its imports are less than $2 billion. So, again, the boycott hurts Turkey more than the Gulf countries, but the bottom line is, is that what is fantastic about this story is that we are beginning to finally see not only a delinkage from the Palestinian issue, but a delinkage from the Islamist domination. If we're going to start to see them withering on the vine, it's not going to happen overnight. But finally, we're going to start to see a fractionation as we divide and conquer Islamism, and each of these countries loses its hegemonic influence against the West and its animus against the West, and we slowly develop more alliances, we'll begin to put back principles of universal human rights. And again, I'm still a, a significant critic of the monarchies and of Saudi Arabia and its draconian laws. But who would have thought that last week Saudi Arabia would pass a law making it illegal for any woman under 18 to be married? Now, again, it's still a theocracy run by Wahhabi interpretations of law. But the protection and the stop cessation of the marriage of children, of young women to men, I think, is a major, major advancement. Remember, a few years ago, the Saudis wouldn't even change it from 10 years old. 10 years old. So there is some small baby steps being made, significant, I think whether it's to begin to break away the, the cemented misogyny that's in their interpretations, whatever it might be, the bottom line is, is there's progress being made there and also the deeper ideological underpinnings of political Islam are being ravaged from France to Austria to the Middle East. Now some of them are being done with appropriate diagnosis, but the wrong treatments and we've addressed that in previous 
previous podcasts. So, an interesting 2021 is certainly ahead for all of us. Come here, come back to this podcast to sort of get a flavor of what's happening elsewhere, how to look through the lens of universal human rights, of freedom and liberty, rather than through the lens of a pathologic partisanship, one side versus the other, that that somehow dominates how we look at things. No, we should look at the ideas of interpretation of the faith of almost a quarter of the world's population through a way that brings us to modernity and ends the scourge of theocracy and theocratic interpretations of Islam, and most notably political Islam. Always a joy to be with all of you. Thank you for being here. We'll see you again next week on Reform This. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, and also on Reform This Radio on Twitter. God bless. We'll see you soon. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.